0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. There are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. And you can grab one of those Bibles and turn to page 445. The book of Joel will be in chapter 2, verses 28 till 32. Uh, I am not a a huge superhero fan myself. Uh, never really read the comics when I grew up and I uh, haven't watched many of the movies, but I know a lot of people are huge fans of superhero movies, and there are many of you here uh, in the room today that share that passion uh, because superheroes are, are very popular. I just read that in the year 2017, of the 10 highest grossing films that year, five of them were superhero films. So it seems like our culture. Here in America has kind of a fascination with superheroes. Um, There's a lot of reasons, I suppose, for that appeal. Um, We like to see people fight the forces of evil. Um, They, for some, probably serve as kind of role models. Um, They have their own personal struggles and insecurities that they have to work through, and sometimes we find that we can identify with these Superheroes, But of course, the thing that maybe is most appealing or intriguing to us are the special powers that superheroes have, which can express themselves in various ways. Some superheroes can fly. Some have superhuman strength. Some can read minds. Some can make themselves very, very small. And I wonder if you've ever thought about that. Like, if I could have a superpower, what would it be? What superpower would, would you want if you could have one? Well, what if I told you this, that you do have a superpower? If you're a Christian, you do have a superpower. I I might rephrase that to say you have a supernatural power that has been given to you by God. And this supernatural power is prophesied, it's told about in the book of Joel at the end of chapter 2. And that's what we're going to look at Today, as we continue through our sermon series, we are moving through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book, Route 66, there's 66 books in the Bible, and so that's our goal. We began our study of the Minor Prophets last week, there are 12 Minor Prophets, and this is the second of the Minor Prophets, this small book, just three chapters, called Joel. Um, The author, we believe, is Joel, we actually don't know much about him at all, not much information is given to us. Um, the date that Joel was written also uh, kind of mysterious. Some say it was sometime before the exile, some say it was um, after the exile and after the people of God had returned to their homeland, so somewhere between maybe the sixth and third or fourth century. Um, but a lot of scholars do Debate when that actually happened. We don't really know. Significant events, if you know anything about Joel, you'll know that there's this really intense locust invasion that takes place in the book of Joel. And if you think that sounds crazy, uh, it's not. You can Google it and find out that there have been a lot of times in history where a swarm of locusts have come and devastated a landscape. So uh, that is historically documented. And the theme of Joel would be this. Repetition of the day of the Lord with an emphasis on repentance and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So this is how the book of Joel begins in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 with this description of this locust invasion. So as you know from uh, our study of the prophets so far that very often God is using the prophets to pronounce judgment upon God's people for their sin. And that is what is happening here in the book of Joel. We don't know the specific sins that the people committed because they aren't named in the book of Joel like they are in some of the other prophets. Uh, But we do know that Joel is speaking to Judah, the southern kingdom. But he begins with this, yeah, very interesting description in chapter 1. We're not going to read it, but it's these locusts who... ...who come and they destroy the grain and the wheat and the barley... ...and there's so many of them that they're beginning to enter the windows of people's homes... ...and coming into their houses. And we read that the food dries up and the animals are starving... ...and it's just devastation over the landscape. And this is one of the ways that God has uh, inflicted judgment on His people. But then we get to the end of chapter 2 and we have this wonderful promise... It's this prophetic promise of a coming power that is going to land upon God's people one day. And that's what we're going to read this morning. Joel 2, starting at verse 28. So if you're able, please stand and I will read this short passage to us. Joel 2, starting in verse 28. So Joel says this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. "'Blood and fire and columns of smoke. "'The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood "'before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. "'And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. "'For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, "'as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls.'" God, again, we do ask, as we are about to read about your spirit, that your spirit would be among us today. Open our eyes and soften our hearts to behold and believe the wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, here's Joel prophesying this coming power, and so we're going to go through this text by seeking to answer three questions, and the first question is this. When does the power come? This power that Joel is talking about, when does it come? Well, verse 28, you'll see that the passage begins with Joel saying, it shall come to pass afterward. This word afterward, pretty vague, open-ended term. (laughs) That could mean a lot of things, right? Afterward. But this actually is one of the prophecies that is easier to understand particularly when we look to the New Testament, because it's very clear what this passage is referring to. And we receive the instruction about that in Acts chapter 2. And so this is after Jesus has come and has lived a perfect life and has laid down His life on the cross in payment for sins and is resurrected from the dead... And so he, he lives, he is risen, and there are people who believe in him. And so we see the beginning of the church at this time, and the believers in Christ are together, it tells us here in Acts chapter 2. They're all together, and then they hear this sound of a, a mighty rushing wind, it says in the room and they see tongues of fire, and they start to speak in different languages. We read that there are people from all different nations and ethnicities represented in this place. And as they start to speak, people of one nation hear someone else speaking in their own language so that they can understand. And they're just amazed at what is happening. There's this unbelievable, remarkable, extraordinary thing happening. And there are those who are observing and they're they're watching what these Christians are doing. And they're so struck by what's happening, they say, these people are drunk. They've had too much wine. They're intoxicated. And in response to that, Peter stands up and he addresses all of the men of Jerusalem. And he says, These people are not drunk. After all, it's in the morning. I mean, who gets drunk in the morning? He It's too early for them to be drunk. He says, here's what is happening. And then in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 17, he quotes this passage that I just read to you. He quotes Joel chapter 2. And what he is saying to everybody is this event that is happening here is a fulfillment of a prophecy that came to us from Joel hundreds of years ago. And so what we see here is that Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled in what we call Pentecost, the day when Jesus, just as he promised, poured out his Holy Spirit on his people. Now, you might remember that after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples, and there is an occasion in Acts chapter 1 where he's talking to his disciples, and he says, stay here in Jerusalem, because in a few days the Spirit of God is coming. And so the disciples waited there, and that's what we then read about in Acts chapter 2. So, very clear, Acts chapter 2 is telling us that Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled at Pentecost. Now, we look throughout the rest of this passage, and we see some kind of mysterious apocalyptic language here, like verse 30 wonders in the heavens, and blood and fire, columns of smoke. We see uh, the sun being turned to darkness, the moon to blood, and we don't see in Acts chapter 2 that those things happened. So, Peter is not intending to say that everything in Joel chapter 2 was fulfilled at Pentecost, but but certainly some things are. So, what what do we do with this language in chapters, uh, in verse 30 and 31? Again, a lot of different interpretations about that, but you will notice at the end of verse 31 that these things are going to happen before the great and awesome Day of the Lord comes. And here we have this repeated theme in the book of Joel of the day of the Lord. Throughout the prophets, we see the day of the Lord often refers to a day of judgment for Israel, a day of judgment for Israel's enemies. But then when we get to the New Testament, we see that the day of the Lord refers to the second coming of Christ, when Jesus is going to come a second time. He's come once, but he's going to come again, and he's going to bring history to a close, and that's going to be the final judgment day for all humanity. And the Bible says that is called the day of the Lord. So what Joel is saying here, sometime before that time, we're going to see some evidence of these wonders in the heavens. Didn't happen at Pentecost, but apparently will happen sometime. So to answer this question, when does does the power come? Let me show you one more thing. If you look again at verse 28, when Joel says, It shall come to pass afterwards, so there's that kind of vague term, that's when the Spirit is going to come. But if you look to Acts 2, again, Peter's sermon about this, when Peter talks about this, he changes the language just a little bit. Now, Peter can do that. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is interpreting a prophecy. We look to the New Testament to help us understand the Old Testament. The New Testament can do that. It's okay. The New Testament can tell us what Old Testament prophecies mean. And that's what Peter is doing here. And so it says this. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. That's what Peter says. And then he says, and in the last days, Peter says, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So do you see what he did there in verse 28? Instead of saying afterward, he replaced that with... In the last days. And that's the answer to when this is going to happen. When this power of the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. It's going to happen in the last days. So now the question is, when are the last days? And I'll hear Christians talk about this often. And I'll hear people say, you know, and they'll read the things, you know, events going on in in, in the news and throughout the earth. And they say, you know, given all this stuff that's happening, I think we might be in the last days. People say, no, 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 not not yet, not yet. And there's kind of this debate, are we in the last days or not? The answer is yes, we are in the last days. It's very clear that we're in the last days. If you look to Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Joel. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Since Jesus came the first time and taught and performed miracles and lived a perfect life and went to the cross and was risen from the dead, between that time in history, 2,000 years ago, and the time when Jesus comes again, and we don't know when that's going to happen, but in between those two times are what we would call the last days. The last days are between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And there are other New Testament passages that would tell us that. We're in the last days today, right now. So that might sound a little bit strange to you because you think, well, are you saying that Jesus is coming back tomorrow? No, I'm not saying that. You should never listen to anybody who tells you when Jesus is coming back. Anybody who says that he or she knows the date of his return, don't listen to it. Jesus tells us very clearly we're not supposed to do that. But we are told that we are in the last days and what that really means is not that there are just a few days left, that's not what it means. It means that we are in the last epoch or the last era of redemptive history. It means that everything that God has been planning throughout history and described for us in the Bible, all these major things have happened. Creation number one, creation of Adam and Eve, creation of the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, promises made to Israel, promises of a coming Messiah. Hundreds of years went by, people wondering when's the Messiah coming. Finally, the Messiah came in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived on this earth 33 or so years. He did everything the Father required Him. He went to the cross, He paid the penalty for sins. He was risen from the dead, He ascended to the Father, He sent the Holy Spirit. All of these things prophesied, promised throughout the scriptures. All of those things have happened. There's only one last thing left for Jesus to come again and bring history to an end. Now again, that could happen tomorrow, and it could happen in 10,000 years. I, I really have no idea, but there's nothing else left to happen except for Jesus' second coming. So to answer this question, when does the power come, this power of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that's trapped in some bygone era, when Joel prophesied, for instance, nor is it something reserved for some future apocalyptic time that we're waiting for. The time when this power is available is right now, today, to you. There is opportunity. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus has come. A lot of people say, when's he coming again? It's been 2,000 years. kind of seems like he's not coming back. You know, the fact that it's taken him 2,000 years is just simply an act of his mercy. This last days that we live in is what one commentator called the long day of opportunity. It's the opportunity to come and know this God, to believe in him, and to receive this power. The longer he tarries, the more mercy is shown as he is giving opportunity for people throughout the world to come and believe in his name. So when does the power come? The power was given at Pentecost, and that spirit power is available to all who will call on God until Jesus comes a second time. Second question is this. What does this power do? What does the Holy Spirit do? What should we expect the Spirit to do? Will the Spirit enable us to fly like Superman? Or to read minds, or to become really small like Ant Man? No, that, that's not what the Spirit does. We, we look at the Scriptures, in the New Testament in particular, and we see there's a number of things the Spirit does. The Spirit inspires the writers of Scripture so that those who wrote the books of Scripture write what God wants us to know. That, that's a work of the Spirit. The Spirit changes hearts, the Spirit regenerates. People. As the gospel is preached and hearts are, are made new, they're turned from stone to flesh. Eyes are opened so that people see Jesus for who he is and want to believe in him. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps you and me as we read the scriptures, and a lot of it we don't understand very well, but sometimes we keep reading, and then all of a sudden the light bulb goes on, and we get it. Oh, now I know what that passage means. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives gifts to different people in the church as God wants, distributes gifts to us so that we can use them in service to others and in service to the church. But here in Joel 2 we see that there's something particular that's mentioned again in verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then here's what it says the spirits are going to do. The spirit is going to do. Your sons and your daughters shall, they're going to prophesy And then your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will will see visions. That's what the Spirit is going to do, according to Joel. Now what does that mean? (laughs) I mean, does that mean that we who are Christians should expect that we should be hearing from God through dreams and visions? I mean, that's what it sounds like it means, for sure. But let me try to explain this. The role of the Old Testament prophet... What you'll see and what we'll continue to see is to be God's messenger, to be the person who speaks on God's behalf. God's words are on the prophet's lips and he speaks, she speaks God's word. And the way these prophets received God's word was through the things that are mentioned here in verse 28, dreams and visions. That's just the way God did it then, then in the Old Testament. He spoke to people in that way, but if we go back to that passage that I showed you a moment ago in Hebrews 1, remember what it said, long ago, back before Jesus came in the Old Testament times, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God spoke to the prophets in a a lot of different ways. You know, I mean, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush dreams, visions, all kinds of different ways God chose to speak to the prophets. And that was a very distinctive element of what made a person a prophet, is that he heard from God in that particular way. But notice that this is long ago. This is a time in the past. And the implication here is that that's not the primary way God communicates anymore. He communicates to us today through His Son, through Jesus who taught in his earthly ministry and appointed apostles and gave those apostles his teaching so that the apostles would write those things down in the New Testament and we would have the Bible, and that's how we hear from God's Word now. But it was different in the past. There were just selected people, just a few people, just the Jeremiah's and the Daniels and the Isaiahs who were chosen to receive these visions and dreams and to receive God's Word so that they could speak up for God but it wasn't something given to everybody. And so if you look back in, <clears throat> in Numbers chapter 11, there's this occasion where Moses is speaking to Joshua, and Joshua's kind of complaining about people who are prophesying and speaking in the Spirit. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And so Moses is longing for this day when the Spirit would come on All of God's people, not just selected prophets, but all of God's people that they might speak on his behalf. Now, when we look at Joel chapter 2, what I've just told you is that that was fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit came on the people. Well, if you look through Acts, notice what you'll see repeatedly happens after these people have received the Holy Spirit. What they do do, do do, speak up. They talk about Jesus. They, they proclaim to others the gospel. You see several examples of this. Here's Acts chapter 4. Peter <clears throat> has been arrested, and he's before the Jewish council. Remember, this is the same Peter who denied Jesus before a little servant girl. He didn't have the courage to even identify himself with Jesus. Now here's Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, fulfillment of what Joel promised in chapter 2, Pentecost, result of Pentecost. He's filled with the Spirit, and so what does that allow him to do? He says, he speaks up, and here he is before the Jewish council. He couldn't say he believed in Jesus before a 10-year-old girl, and now he's before the Jewish council, and he says... Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this crippled man is now standing before you well. Now that's a bold proclamation, isn't it? Before the Jewish council, from a guy who was just proving himself to be rather cowardly, why was he able to do that? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the power that he received. That's the power that Joel is promising. Here's another example. Later in Acts chapter um, 4, the believers were imprisoned and then they were released. And then it says, when they had prayed, the place in which these believers were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And so what did they do? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's the result of being filled with the Spirit, speaking up. You see what's happening here? It's not just the Isaiahs and the Jeremiah's and the Hoseas and the Joels. It's, it's everybody who believes in Jesus has the Spirit and speaks the Word boldly. Here's one other example, and you'll recognize this from Acts chapter 1. It couldn't be more clear, could it? Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive Power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and that power in you will enable you to be my witnesses. And think implied there is that they will then go forward and proclaim the gospel. John Stott sums it up like this. He says, it is this universal knowledge of God through Christ by the Spirit, which is the foundation of the universal commission to witness Because we know Him, we must make Him known. And the power that is being promised is the enabling ability to do that. And it's not just the pastor, and it's not just the elders. It's all of us. Now, not all of us are as gifted as others in talking about the gospel. That's true. This doesn't mean that this afternoon you got to go knock on every door in your neighborhood and ask people if they're saved. Doesn't mean that you necessarily have to share the gospel with every single person that sits next to you on the airplane. I don't think that means that, but it does mean that you're equipped, the Spirit is in you, and you should be looking for opportunities to tell others about Jesus. That's why the Spirit lives in you. That's what the Spirit does equips you for that. I had uh, an opportunity to do this myself um, this past week. Um, My aunt passed away, aunt who lives in in Plainfield, and so this was uh, my father's sister, so it's kind of the end of an era in our family. All the siblings of my father are are now deceased, and so um, uh, my, my family tends to be a lot of unbelievers, and, you know, pretty strong, in some of them anyway, in their unbelief, and um, I've always had this burden on my heart to be able to share the gospel with them, and, and you know how awkward that is when you're in family gatherings, and you're wondering, should I share the gospel here or there, and, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, and, but I've always wanted to do this, and I've never really had the opportunity, and so this time I prayed. Um, before the funeral last week and I asked God, I said, Lord, would you just give me an opportunity to speak your gospel with boldness? And um, as is my tendency, I pray for something and then I kind of forget about it and rather than looking for an answer to that prayer, I mean, when I was with the family, I really wasn't thinking much at all about, you know, when is God gonna do this? Where is the opportunity for me to, to talk about the gospel? Until the funeral was over, and then my cousin came to me and said, Bob, I want you to give the prayer before the meal. Now, that's not unusual. I'm a pastor. She knows that. So, you know, I, I, I get asked to do that quite often. <laughs> but, but when she asked that, I mean, it was just like the light went on. It was like, this is an answer to my prayer. This is the opportunity. I can stand before this family that I have longed to talk to about the gospel and I can do it in the form of a prayer. And so that's what I did. I tried not to turn it into you know, an altar call or an extended gospel proclamation, but I thank God for our food, and I thanked God that he sent Jesus to, to die on the cross, and that Jesus is risen from the dead, and that he is the one hope that any of us have in the face of death. And thank God that there is this living Savior for any who would receive him. And, um, and amen close my prayer so it was brief afterward i kind of thought i should have said more i should have done more i should have gone into more detail i should have been more direct i don't know those are the words the spirit gave to me those are the words that came out of my mouth i'm going to rest in that and trust god to do something with it but i tell you that story just as an an example of, of looking for an opportunity again it doesn't have to be this thing where you're forcing yourself on somebody you ask god to give you an opportunity he will I mean, that's probably the, the prayer that is most frequently answered in my life. <laughs> God, give me an opportunity to talk about the gospel. Boy, pray that prayer and watch what happens because God loves to answer it. And so that's what the Spirit is, is doing here. That's what Joel is saying. That's really the meaning of the dream, dreaming dreams and seeing visions. It's not necessarily that that's going to happen literally to us, but that we are going to receive the word in the same way the prophets did and be equipped to proclaim it. Last last question is this, who gets this power? Who gets this power? Verse 28, it says, it shall come to pass afterward, and then he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all flesh. So, Again, the reason that statement is so significant is because if you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that the Spirit was only given to certain people, the prophets like I mentioned, but you'll also notice the Spirit poured out on Samson and Joshua and David and Saul. Spirit was given to Saul and then taken from Saul. And so in the Old Testament, we see a difference between the way the Spirit operated compared to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was only given to selected individuals for certain tasks for a limited amount of time in the Old Testament, but only certain individuals. And so this is a significant statement here. And and by the way, almost all of those individuals were male that God poured out His Spirit upon. And now we have this thing in verse 28 where Joel is saying, I'm gonna pour out my Spirit on all flesh, all flesh. And then he delineates what he means by that. Your sons will receive the Spirit. Wow, but not only your sons, your daughters, females, women, will receive the Spirit. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men too. It's not an age distinction here. Even according to verse 29, even the servants, even the slaves in your household will receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will be poured out. Notice that word, too. It's It's a picture of a generous outpouring of the Spirit on slaves, and not just the male slaves, but the female servants as well, in verse 29. The idea here is that anyone and everyone who wants the Holy Spirit can receive the Spirit. It's not limited to certain individuals. That means that all of you who believe in Jesus have the Holy Spirit living in you. It's not like you guys are sitting out in the chairs, and here I am in the pulpit, so therefore I must have more of the Spirit than you. I'm a pastor by vocation. That's what I'm paid to do. Does that mean I have more of the Holy Spirit than you? No. No. The Holy Spirit lives in you just as much as he lives in me. That means you're equipped for ministry just like I'm equipped for ministry. You know, there is this kind of view of the church that says... And I don't think it exists in this congregation, but some people believe this. The pastor does the spiritual work, and the people come and watch the worship show on Sunday mornings. And then they go home and do their business throughout the week without another thought about ministry or what the Spirit is doing. That's the way a lot of people think. Pastors are paid to do spiritual work, not laymen and laywomen in the pew, you know, there's this cliche about how church is like a football game where you have 60,000 people in the stadium and 22 people doing all the work. You know, just the staff and the paid professionals are doing the work while everybody else watches. That's not the case here, but it is a cliche. It is a certain view of the work of the Spirit. And what this passage is telling us is, is no, the Spirit fills all who will come to Christ. And by the way, we, we can use some help here. You know? we, we do have opportunities for you to serve. We, we need people in the nursery. We need people in the sound booth. We need people at the welcome booth. And so uh, I would encourage you to consider that if you're not serving already. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good of the church All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit gives gifts to all of God's people. But but let me just go back to this all flesh phrase in verse 28 and and we'll be done. What what does this mean, all flesh? It, It could be read to mean that what Joel is saying is that every single person without exception is going to receive the Holy Spirit. Is that what this means? Does this mean that every single person is saved, that you don't have to do anything, there's no condition, it's just by being alive in this world, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Is that what this means? And the answer is no. And we can see that because if you go to the end of the passage, verse 32, it's very clear. Joel also says this, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's who's going to receive the Holy Spirit. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Paul picks this up later in Romans 10, and he says this, there is no distinction between Jew and And Greek, no matter what nationality you're from, he's saying, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then look what Paul does. He quotes Joel 2.32. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul here is helping us understand... What this passage means, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, you might say, well, who is the Lord? Well, just a little earlier in chapter 10, Paul said, if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The Lord is Jesus. The New Testament applies that term to Jesus. So we can reread this and say this, for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved and will receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be filled with his spirit. You will receive a superpower in the form of the Holy Spirit. There is no distinction. It doesn't say there is no exception. It's not on all people without exception. It's all people without distinction. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, wherever you're from, whatever you've done. If you're young or old, you might be in retirement years. You you might be five, six years old. You might be African American. You might be white. You might be Hispanic. You might be Asian. You might consider yourself straight. You might consider yourself gay. You might consider yourself bi. You might consider yourself transsexual. You might consider yourself an atheist. You might consider yourself a Hindu. You might consider yourself a Muslim. But what God's call to you is this. If you will turn from your sin and believe and call upon the name God, of Jesus, you will be saved. It's really that simple. It's a glorious message. It's not get your life in order, work harder, be a good person, join a church, be religious and you'll be saved. No. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever you are, there is no distinction. Call on Him and you will be saved. And the Spirit promised here in Joel chapter 2 will be poured out on you as well that's the power that's offered to you in the gospel let's pray lord we thank you that not only have you sent us your son jesus but sent us your spirit as well and we are grateful and ask for a great filling of this spirit as we seek this week to live for your glory and honor in jesus name we pray amen